Revelation 19. Now, we were in Revelation 19 just a few months ago. Uh, I know you've already forgotten about it all. And uh, in the age of COVID, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Um, so it's like 3,000 years ago that we actually looked at this passage. And, and we're going to uh, look at some of the same things, make some of the same points we, we did before. But I really, we looked at Revelation 19. You remember we looked at the seven letters to the seven churches. And so our study of Revelation came out of that. But I want to do something a little different, just a little different this evening. And in light of what we saw this morning with David, who um, is a precursor of what Christ will one day accomplish, and we hope he accomplishes it sooner rather than later. Next year's election year, and two years after that is the worst election year, right? So, so we hope it, he comes quickly. But we want to look at it in light of what David accomplished to what Christ will accomplish. So Revelation 19, we want to read the whole chapter, so if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. John writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. One more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. From a throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against them, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we, we, we ask as always you would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ, transformed by the gospel. Lord, we are confronted here with a text that 
um, uh, draws us to anticipate what is to come. And we ask, Lord, that you do come quickly. We live in a world that desperately needs divine justice. And we ask that you would be so kind to purify your church and to cleanse the world of evil. Name your son, we pray. Amen. May be seated. A few weeks ago on Wednesday night, uh, we, we talked a little bit. I actually mentioned my thesis. Let me give you a little insight into the seminary. A lot of your academic stuff no one cares about. So the one time uh, my, my academic life matters, I get a little excited. And I mentioned that I, I wrote my thesis, about 100 pages, on a guy by the name of Brian McLaren. There is his mugshot. And uh, got to meet him a few times. Um, in fact, one time I shook his hand, told him who I was, told him I was a student at Southern Seminary, and uh, he just stared at me, like waiting for me to throw hot coffee in his face or something. Like, I just came here to say hi, right? right? I've, uh, I've, I've already condemned you in my heart. So, right, so, um, no, um, but Brian McLaren uh, was, a, was a focal head in, in what, what was called the Emergent Church. It's really no longer around as a theological movement. Um, but he wrote a book, you see it up there, called The Last Word and the Word After That. It is a work of fiction. It is also a story that is a work of fiction, okay? And uh, there is a joke there. You'll eventually catch it. And um, it is the last book of a trilogy where it is theology done by means of story. It's not unique in church history, even in, in, in modern Christian history. The third book has to do with the judgment of God, particularly with the matter of, of hell. And in that book, he essentially rejects completely the doctrine of hell, Mainly for three reasons, three reasons you, you've heard before. And this is true not just of hell, but, uh, but of the idea that God would condemn the wicked or anything. Uh, the first is that the judgment of God is offensive. We, um, unless you're on Twitter, prefer tolerance, open-mindedness, inclusion, stuff like that. Let's all get together, light a candle, sing the Coca-Cola theme song, or watch Oprah. Secondly, judgment promotes exclusion. And what it does is it puts people into two camps. You're either on the right side or the wrong side. You're either sheep or goats. And uh, that, that, is, that is something our society struggles with, although secularism is certainly going in that direction. The argument goes that dividing people promotes inequality, exclusion, abuse, violence, that sort of stuff. And then there is the, the belief that the judgment of God is repulsive. Um, in fact, I, I think I shared this uh, a few Wednesday nights ago that um, he has a story in there uh, or, or scene in there where uh, they're talking about hell. And one of the ladies says that uh, if there are people in hell, the Jesus I worship would go down there immediately and rescue them. Why? Because the idea of judgment is repulsive. Yet when you read the Bible, and I would argue when you just live in the fallen world we live in, I think the judgment of God and the coming judgment of God is truly good news. It is something that we, we must long for. After a series of, of some real disasters in Wittenberg, um, people came to Luther and wanted to know, how, how, how do I pray in light of, of all the death around me and all the sadness and mourning and, and picking up the pieces? And um, I think of this often whenever there's a mass shooting or some other like, terrorist attack or something like that. He really said, one, we, we pray for the protection of the innocent. We pray for the repentance of the guilty. We pray for the judgment of God upon 
the unrepentance. I think he's on to something. We live in a world that does indeed need judgments. Whether that will be a temporary judgment we see like in Sodom and Gomorrah or Babylon and some others, one thing we, we, we can know for sure is the day will come when final judgment will be wielded out. And as we see here, this is a cause of celebration. Notice that this passage begins that it argues that judgment leads to worship. Now, notice there, verse 1, after this, right? That's like the word therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore, you should know this by now. You should ask yourself, self, what is therefore, therefore? After this is there because it's telling you something came before it, not to insult your understanding of the English language. But the language requires us to consider the, the previous chapters, right? And we're introduced to some characters. We went into some detail with that several months ago with these characters, so I don't, wanna, don't want to review all of that again. The first is the beast, right? Um, the beast, we argued then. I won't defend it because we've already gone through all of those details. Uh, just for the sake of simplicity, would represent political power, right? Now, the way we may articulate this may be different from one to the other, but most agree that it represents uh, some form of political power. If you come out of a dispensationalist background, you may see the beast as the antichrist, right? Uh, if, if you come from a different tradition or hold to a different eschatology, you may see that the beast represents an empire. You may point to Daniel 7, where uh, the various beasts represent Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, and finally Rome. And that last beast is worse than the ones before it. Certainly there is a Roman, uh, 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 Rome carries a heavy weight in Revelation because it's written to Roman Christians. These Christians who are in uh, Roman society, and they've been persecuted by the Roman government. But either one works for our purposes today, whether you see it as an individual in the future or you see it as a Roman-like empire in the future, even Rome itself in the past. Uh, either, either view works. The second beast there, the false prophet, also referred to as a beast in chapter 13, but is later referred to as the false prophet, represents religious power. This is, uh, we'll use the term organized religion. Uh, chapter 13, verse 11, he's described as looking like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. This is the inverse of how we see Christ in chapter 5, who is the lion lamb. Here we have the lamb dragon, and he is empowered by the dragon to speak blasphemy and evil, to establish false worship. In fact, it is the false prophet who sets up at the end of chapter 13 uh, the mark of the beast. And we will not chase that rabbit, I am sorry. The dragon you see there represents spiritual power. Notice the difference. One is organized, the other is more real. Spiritual power is the dragon. Chapter 12, verse 9 states, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Clearly, John gives us every description in the Bible of Satan and says, okay, we're going to put them all together. Here's who I'm talking about. Of course, dragon and serpentine language. We saw this last Sunday evening, didn't we? You can find it throughout all of the Bible, from the serpent in the garden to the serpent here in Babylon. And the hope is the day will come when his head is crushed. Where you see the serpent, you will see death. Uh, after all, he's associated with the tree of knowledge that leads to death, right? And, and so here again, we see the blood of the martyrs associated with, with the dragon. Um, he, this dragon deceives the nations, its kings, and most importantly, deceives the beast. And then we see, of course, the harlot. And she, she rides the dragon and all the other imagery. She represents moral power. Again, this is for the sake of simplicity. Chapter 17, verse 18, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominions over the king of the earth. She represents Babylon, but with it comes moral corruption, violence towards the people of God. 
all of which will come under judgment. Now what you have here, these four characters, is uh, something similar to uh, Captain Planet, right? Do you want to have a happy childhood remember Captain Planet, right? You remember that each kid, I think there's five kids, they had a ring, and each ring had a certain power. Um, and, then, and then when they brought their rings together at the end of each episode, by your powers combined, I am Captain Planet. Anyone else have a, uh, a, a good childhood where you were being brainwashed by, by TV, right? Anyone else? Maybe not, okay. Uh, maybe it's Power Rangers. Maybe does that, does that work better with someone? Voltron work for anyone? Come on, people, work with me here, right? That individually, they're bad enough. You don't want moral corruption. You don't want corrupt religious authority. You don't want uh, a spiritual uh, injustice. You, you don't want political uh, corruption. You don't want any of that. But what you get here in Revelation is by their powers combined. Right? And, and this, this is where it, it gets really out, out of hand. You see the complete corruption of what we could call Babylon for the sake of simplicity. Corruption politically, economically, religiously, spiritually, and morally. And this is primarily seen in Revelation at the targeted uh, uh, focus against the people of God. From the very beginning, in Revelation 1, all the way to the end, we see the blood of the martyrs in almost every chapter. And we saw that in the seven letters several months ago, you you may recall. Um, Now, remember also that Revelation was written to those first churches. It's not like they got a little brief letter and that was it. They got that letter of a few paragraphs, and then they got everything else, which means that everything else in Revelation, including this chapter, was to meet and apply to their unique circumstance. Whether they lost their, 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 their first love, or they were a dead and dying church, or a persecuted church, or a lukewarm church, whatever it might be, these, these chapters are to meet where they are. So, so you can read Revelation as anticipating the future, and I think that's fine. But you also have to see it as dealing with Christians in the first century, particularly in Asia Minor. And they are being targeted by the Roman system. And if you are one of those Christians, you can't buy, you can't sell because you are marked by the lamb and not by the beast. What is it that you want the most? The next election to fix it? Because you know it's not going to. What do you want the most? What you want is for Jesus to show up and to put an end to it. In fact, all of this comes crashing down in chapter 18. This is really what is meant by after this. And that is why chapter 18 is so important. And and, and you'll notice in chapter 18, the perspective of things is on earth. In chapter 19, the perspective of things is on heaven. It's actually why I want us to read chapter 19 instead of chapter 18. If we had time, we could look at him in some detail. But let's look briefly at chapter 18. Look at verse 2 of chapter 18, verse, verse 2. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Now, what is Babylon the Great? It's, it's, it's all of these things. The dragon, it's the false prophet, it's, it's, it's the beast, it's the harlot, all of that. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. What we need to see here is is that she is fallen. In fact, verse 3, we see that the nations have drunk of, of, her, of her poison, right? So, so, so it isn't just that, that Babylon has fallen, but because of their, of their uh, uh, relationship with her, right? Remember the harlot, right? And she's called a harlot for a reason. So, so when Babylon falls, you, there's, there's, a, there's a trickle-down effect to, 
to the nations. They have compromised for their own economic, political, and spiritual uh, advantages. So that is, that is the theme, how Babylon falls, and that Babylon will fall. And so in verse 9 and 10, we see the political fallout of this, right? Uh, verse 9 of chapter 18, the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Later, we see in verse 11 to 13, the economic fallout of Babylon. You see it there, and the merchants of the earth wept and mourned for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, uh, uh, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. By the way, notice there how human souls, the fact that that is cargo, is condemned by Jesus. And you need to see it as, as, as that. It's a shame we missed that over couple hundred years in, in this country. And so if chapter 18 portrays the judgment of God, and you can keep reading, it goes back to the political and economic fallout and some spiritual fallout and whatnot. So, so if, if the judgment of God is viewed from an earthly perspective in chapter 18, it's from the heavenly perspective in chapter 19. So while the kings and the merchants mourn, the divine council rejoice. I mean, what a contrast that is, right? And it is worth noting. They rejoice. In fact, you'll notice, uh, starting there in the second part of verse 1, um, the similarity of this song connects us to what we see in chapters 4 and 5. So you see that uh, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. This is right after chapter 4 and 5. In fact, you, you'll see down in verse 4, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, fell down and worshiped God who seated on the throne. Amen. Hallelujah. Taken right out of, out of chapters 4 and 5. Because John wants us to see that Christ is not only creator, he is redeemer, he is also judge. It's funny, isn't it, that some of us want a God who's creator. Some of us just want a God who's redeemer. But very few of us are content with a God who is judge. And Revelation will not let us escape that. Notice in verse 2, his judgments are true and just. Therefore, he destroys the harlot and those who targeted the saints. Verse 13, they, 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 they sing hallelujah. This word is found only in the final psalms. And in the book of Revelation. For example, this might be worth your time. Uh, go to Psalm 149. Psalm 149. I think it'd be good if you just see it for yourself in your own Bible. It's the second to last Psalm. Psalm 149. It's in the middle of your Bible. The last five or six Psalms, don't quote me on that, uh, are all like praise Psalms. So they'll start out with praise the Lord. I'd recommend memorizing 48, 49, and 50. Just, just go all the way through them. Uh, David Platt. Uh, did that once at seminaries. Very, very powerful. 149, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praises in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy of their beds. Let high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. Well, that just took a weird turn, didn't it? We love that first part, right? Let's sing and dance because the weather's fine. Unless, of course, it's cold and rainy on a Sunday morning. Wait, never mind. Hold on. But we, wait, 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 we're going to celebrate these things. We love this, right? That'll preach. 
Everything is good. Life is wonderful. This is sort of Jesus we want. He's, oh, by the way, sing with your throats and you're armed with a double-edged sword. Why? Verse 7, to execute vengeance on the nations, punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains, their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. And there it is. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's funny how we miss that part in the Psalms, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what it is we, we see here, isn't it? What does he say there, verse 3? Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Thus, from the perspective of heaven, the judgment of Christ is received with joy and worship. And I want to argue in Revelation, the perspective of heaven should be the perspective of Christians. See, in Revelation, the earth, the Lord of the earth, if if we can use that language, is Babylon. But our citizenship is not here on earth. This is one of the big problems with American evangelicalism. The perspective of Christians in Revelation is the perspective of heaven. The, 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 The proverbial curtain is pulled back so that heaven's perspective can become our perspective. We ask all the time, what in the world is God doing in our midst? What is he doing in the nations? You pull back the curtain revelation, you're like, oh, I see. I'm confronted with the creator who's Lord over all, a redeemer who, 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 who saves all who would come and, is, and, and brings with him grace bought by the blood of the lamb. And then I also see one who is executing justice for his glory. His glory will be known among the nations. By the way, you should read that more than you read Twitter or whatever news you, you use. Wouldn't your life be better? Wouldn't your life be better? I think it would be. So we see here then that the judgment of Christ is good news. Every single one of us here have lost our temper, some more than others. Some of us, it, it, takes, a lot, it takes a lot more work than others. And you are the people who, who I just don't understand how you do it. <laughs> I, I can have a short fuse. It's a little longer now, thanks to sanctification, but it's still not as long as some others. And um, um, why do we lose our temper? We feel that we have been wronged and that wrong need to be righted. That's good English. We understand naturally that every wrong must be corrected. We, we, we get this, right? However, we reject the idea that God would act like that. So in our confused age, we are one that believes that the justicism and law enforcement are corrupt and untrustworthy. At the same time, we will celebrate when we feel that jurors made the right decision. Have you noticed this? We want justice while at the same time complaining that it's all broken. <laughs> I mean, it's why? Because inside of us all, we understand that judgment is good news. The wicked must pay, evil must be stopped, judgment must be rendered. And if it is good news when the system is consistent with justice, how much more so whenever God is consistent with his nature? If God does not address the evil of this world, he cannot be considered good and holy. After all, put yourself in the early shoes of these believers who this book is originally written to. 
They are impoverished because they are targeted victims of an unjust system that has weaponized the market and targeted them for punishment, torture, and even death. They are oppressed by an empire that worships the dragon. They are victims of the licentiousness that lies all around them. Would you not pray, come, Lord Jesus, quickly, and when you come, bring a sword? Of course you would. Remember, what are the three things Luther uh, 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 counseled us to pray? Pray for the protection of the, of, of the innocent. Pray for the redemption of the wicked. And pray for the judgment upon those who will not repent. The reason too many Christians fail to take the judgment of God too seriously is because we are too often in love with this world. Well, we've got to move on. Notice that judgment leads to purity. Here, here we see this, this wedding scene. You've heard me say this before because I find this stuff fascinating. If, if you remember from last Sunday night, you really saw where I nerded out. Um, the Bible opens up with a wedding that goes to a war. Right, So Adam and Eve, you remember the first words Adam has recorded to Eve is a love poem. Ladies, this is your chance to say, ah, and you guys have to put up with it. Let's move on, right? So he's a bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. That's a Johnny Cash song, by the way. And, and um, um, I'm trying to get it in my head, but I'll spare you. And um, flesh and blood, see, I got it anyways. Flesh and blood needs flesh and blood, and you're the one I love, right? That's Johnny Cash. The next track of whatever album you're listening to, he probably shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. But, um, uh, but it starts with a wedding. It goes to war. There will be hostility, enmity between your seed and her seed, right? How does the Bible end? It ends with a war. Jesus is going to show up and lay the smack down. It moves immediately into a wedding. We see that twice in Revelation. See, in chapter 18, the war. Chapter 19, the wedding. And then we saw at the end of chapter 19, the war. In chapter 20 and 21, the wedding. It repeats it twice for us. So what we are to do, so if, if chapter 19 and 18 are to contrast the earthly perspective of Babylon and the heavenly perspective of, of Jesus, what you get here in verses 6 and 10 is two contrasts, the harlot on one end and the bride of Christ on the other. The harlot is described as speaking blasphemy, 17 verse 3, immorality, promoting immorality, chapter 17 verse 2 and 4, political suppression, chapter 17 verse 5. Uh, this is where, where uh, the, the, their, their identity is on the forehead. Um, um, that's where we get confused with the mark of the beast. Everyone is marked in Revelation, believers and non-believers. We only focus on the mark of the beast because we don't like Microsoft or something like that, right? But, but, the, but the truth is everyone is marked in Revelation. You are either sealed by the Spirit or you're sealed by the beast. Chapter 17, verse 6, she promotes violence. Um, and, and now you contrast that with the bride here in chapter 19. Verse 6, she is worthy of praise. And verse 7, she is pure. She makes herself ready. Verse 8, she's described as being righteous. Notice that she's dressed in fine linen, bright and pure. And what I love is, is, is that she isn't perfect now. right? She's not ready now. So far, it's taken her 2,000 years to get ready. And husbands, you thought it took your bride forever to get ready for the wedding, right? <laughs> I mean, my goodness. I've told this story a thousand times because I think it's hilarious. The day before our wedding, we were up here in Frankfurt. And uh, our nephew and I, we, we were waiting on the women to get their nails did, you know. And uh, I remember uh, we went over to Corinth. Y'all remember Corinth? See, I did grow up near here. Um, over on, on the west side. Uh, where the pagans live. And we went over there. We did all said, waiting for the, the girls to get their nails did so we can go out to eat. It's, it's the eve of our wedding. And so we're getting tired of waiting because we're men and, and you women don't move until the men show up and, and force your hand, right? Is that, is that wrong? Is that wrong? You're going to meet me outside now. Well, um, 
I remember I walked into the nail place, and what I see sitting upon the throne is my wife getting her feet and, and hands did, right? And I was not expecting that. I don't know what happens in these places. I can't stand the smell of them. And I walk in, and she's like, behold my kingdom, right? Like, you know, this marriage thing, I just don't know now, right? And then the wedding day comes, right? I slept in. We had a late wedding, you know. I don't know why, but, 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 but we didn't. And we, 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 I slept in and played Xbox with my brother. And the whole time I thought, she got up with all the other gals. And they were already going like a full day's work already. And I can't decide if I want donuts, fresh donuts, or like putting some cinnamon rolls, right? You know, like the decisions I was making was nothing compared. So I got to the church a little earlier than I was supposed to because they're like, well, it seems like I should be at the church for my wedding, right? And then I got ready in five minutes because I'm a male, right? Uh, you ain't going to approve this no matter how hard you try. And, and I'm literally, you can't. The bride takes over everything in the church, so I'm stuck to a closet where we change, the boys change, and I can't go anywhere, right? And so I'm just sitting there like, I've got like four hours before this wedding, and this is my life, right? I mean, it takes forever to get ready for that wedding. Doesn't need to be from a guy's perspective, but it does. So too, she, she is making herself ready. She's been going out for 2,000 years, right? But you'll notice that she is beautiful and pure, the harlot is defiled. The bride is beautiful and pure. In the end, the harlot makes herself available for all and thus is loved by none. The bride is available and ready for one and only one. This is really the beauty of marriage, isn't it? I've used this illustration before, but at his death, Hugh Hefner died alone. Unlike any married man. It's amazing you can be loved by thousands and not be loved by all. Or you can be loved by one and realize that is sufficient. Well, verses 9 and 10, the bride is ready for her wedding day. Ultimately, what we, we are to see is what comes out of this act of judgment. Christ's judgment is not just destructive. I think that's the problem that we have. Because that, that's what a mob does. Mobs destroy, mobs do not construct. Christ comes not to destroy, but to recreate. And this is why the final chapters of Revelation is so important, is that a new heavens and a new earth are made ready. And God purifies all that is broken and evil and wrong. And what we get is uh, Eden renewed, but it's better than what it was because we know God not just as creator, as Adam and Eve did. We know him now as redeemer. We know him now as just and holy and pure, as one who makes us holy and pure for him. It's, it's a beautiful scene we get. And so the wedding is perfect for this. The judgment of God isn't destructive, it's constructive. So he cleanses the world and establishes an eternal kingdom, which begins with the wedding of the king, room and bride, Christ and the church. So what we see here is that the judgment of Christ cleanses the church. Can I, can I give you a little bit of insight here? Uh, nothing has drained or continues to drain the soul of anyone in church leadership more than the lack of maturity and purity with, among church members. This is why this passage is good news. Nothing drains church leadership more than that. I mean, let's look around here for a minute. Like I've been studying a lot of history of this church, looked at, looked at about 40 years of this church. Where are the people who were here 10 years ago? Where are they? This is a big problem for our churches, isn't it? 
We get so caught up by what's happening outside the world, we don't take the time to consider what's happening inside of our own building. This is the biggest frustration of, of pastoral leadership. It's not the pagans. It's the people who claim they have repented. If the judgment of God comes the cleansing of the church. One last thing, we gotta go. You're already tired. Just judgment leads to justice. You see there, it opens up there in verse 11. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. I'm sorry, um, verse 11. I gotta turn the page. Verse 11, then I saw heaven open. This is a common phrase in Revelation. Behold, a white horse. Not the first white horse we've seen. You go back to chapter 6 for that. It's one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But, but this horse, we know exactly who it is. We can debate about the one in chapter 6. This one, we know it is. John sees a white horse, a common imagery in the ancient Near Eastern world, particularly in the Roman world. You didn't want, ride a white horse unless you were victorious. Right? I mean, this, this is shadow facts in Lord of the Rings. This, this is the horse. This is the best one it is, and the rider is Christ. And notice he makes war in righteousness. He came in peace before to lay his life down. Now he comes to make war. In verses 12 through 16, the descriptions for him uh, are, are saturated with power and righteousness. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really important. That's the beauty of apocalyptic, right? You don't have to be able to, to, to explain every little detail, but you get the gist, don't you? On his head are many diadems, crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. Clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And there's debate there. Is that the, the blood from the cross or is that blood from those who are about to be destroyed? The armies of heaven are following him on white horses, verse 14. From his mouth, he strikes down the nations. And we can talk all we want about the word of God that proceeds out of his mouth, but we can't also at the same time miss the point of striking down the nations. Verse 15, he rules with a rod of iron. Verse 16, on his robe and thighs tattooed king of kings and lord of lords. The summary is actually given us in verse 15. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I don't know how to make wine, but I kind of get the point. You put in the grapes, you stop stepping with your bare feet, right? I'm sure you had a pedicure first, but you're just going through it, right? And that is a metaphor, that is an illustration of what the wrath of God will look like. It will be bloody, it will be massive. It will be like treading the wine press, the fury of God's wrath. And what is the outcome of this judgment? Going down to verse 17, we see that birds consume carrion. Now that is a grotesque imagery. It certainly is. Yeah, that is not unique in the Bible. Almost every verse in Revelation is borrowed from the Old Testament. This one's no different. The book of Ezekiel describes the day of the Lord in a similar fashion. We actually looked at this some last week. So the man set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say, this is the Lord God. Behold, I am against you. I will put hooks in your jaws, make the fish of your streams stick to your scales, and I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams and all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales. That's a very violent imagery, isn't it? You will be like fish. I'm going to go fishing, and, and the hook will get you in the jaw, and you will not be able to get loose. He goes on, And I will cast you out into the wilderness, and you and all the fish of your streams shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered. To the beasts of the earth, to the birds of the heavens, I give you as food. Notice that language of the beasts of the earth and, and birds of the air it takes us all the way back to Noah and it takes us all the way back to creation. Now they will be weapons of judgments. Strong language. And so John is, is borrowing this. They will consume the flesh of those 
who are under the judgment of God. Verse 19 to 21, we see that the beast and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire. Perhaps this is the same battle of Har Megiddo uh, that, that happens earlier, uh, or commonly known as Armageddon. It's actually Har Megiddo. Har is the Hebrew word meaning mountain, mountain of Megiddo. Even that's debatable, but Har Megiddo. What happens is that Christ casts both the beast and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And this is the same judgment that everyone will receive. So we get chapter 20, the devil and all he deceived thrown into the lake of fire. In chapter 20, death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. That's the second death, right? Final judgment. In verse 15, anyone's name not found written in the Lamb's book of life thrown into the lake of fire. This is the final judgments. Christ sets up his kingdom. He will rule and reign forever. Well, if, 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 if divine justice will bring with it good news and a reason to rejoice, and we should rejoice, this world is not our home and our, our citizenship is not here on earth, it is in heaven. And it should, it should lead us to repentance and cleansing as we make ourselves ready for the day of our wedding. It should also produce in us hope. Hope. I mean... Think about it. If, if one day we will just die and rot in the ground, how do you handle today, let alone that day? How do you handle today? You see, when you deny ultimate justice in the hereafter, you question the reality of what is evil in the here and now. I don't know what's going to happen in the next election or leading up to that election or how crazy things are going to get. Suspect they're going to get a little crazier. <laughs> little. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word, I guess. But I do know this isn't how the story ends. And if you reread a story, right, and you know how it ends, do you worry about your main characters? Do you worry about the events in the middle of the plot? No. Because you know how it ends. I don't know where we are in the story of God. I have no idea. But I do know how the story ends. And that gives us hope. I don't know if I put this up here or not. Yeah, Spurgeon once said, when we speak of heaven and the joys of this life, let your face light up, your smile shine, your eyes twinkle. When we speak of hell, your ordinary face will do just fine. I find that hilarious. Look, we live in a fallen, corrupt, wicked world. It has been this way since Eden, and it will remain so until the final return of Christ. Human justice is limited in its scope and its ability. All of our best efforts are inadequate at best. But there is a future hope that we have and a hope that we live by today. That vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. And the day will come when evil will be but a distant memory and tears will be just as easily forgotten. That's the hope we have in Christ. Let's pray.